Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, March 12th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Gun violence has once again dominated news headlines over the past few weeks since the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. The teen survivors have demanded reforms from raising age restrictions to purchase certain firearms to 21, to banning bump stocks and high-capacity magazines, and closing loopholes that allow purchases of firearms without background checks. Predictably, arguments have erupted on whether, if any of these policy changes would quote-unquote work. That's where science should step in, but unfortunately, there is very little solid evidence on the host of outcomes. The nonpartisan think tank RAND Corporation recently released a report surveying thousands of studies on gun violence to simply state what we know and how well we know it. They mapped gun policies like background checks, bans on assault weapons, concealed carry, minimum age requirements, prohibitions on guns for those with mental illnesses, and many more against outcomes like suicide rates, violent crime, unintentional injuries, mass shootings, and how it will impact the gun industry. It's an extensive report, well worth a read. It doesn't make many sweeping claims outside the fact that we just don't have very much good evidence. Take it from Andrew Morrall, the head of RAND's gun policy initiative, quoted in a recent Vox article. Quote, the studies that have been done often reach opposite conclusions to each other. This creates this kind of fact-free environment in which people can cherry-pick any study that happens to support what their priors are on the effects of the law, end quote. Many blame the lack of evidence on the Dickey Amendment, a 1996 writer lobbied for by the NRA that states, quote, None of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may be used to advocate or promote gun control, end quote. In 2003, the TRT Amendment was passed, restricting the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms from releasing information from its firearm trace database to academic researchers. But our guest this week says that's all changing both because of the swell of new research that exists and new reliable methods that can better link policy to outcomes. 
John Donahue is a professor of law and economics at Stanford University. He's famous for his work with Stephen Levitt on the impact of legalization of abortion on crime rates, which was popularized in the book Freakonomics. But he spent the better part of the last 20 years trying to understand gun violence. Most recently, he's been focused on the impact of concealed carry on violent crime and the impact of restricting gun purchases for people convicted of domestic abuse. Gun violence is a huge issue, one that's not easily discussed. We only touch on a few narrow elements on the show, but I hope to revisit this topic over the coming months. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with John Donahue. John Donahue, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Glad to be with you. Before we dive into some of the details of your research on gun violence, I want to zoom out and say and ask, what's your assessment of how reliable the information that we currently have is when it comes to gun policy? Yes, it's a, it's a very interesting question, um, and we do have. Uh, fairly accurate information in a small number of domains, and then uh, speculative data and conclusions can be drawn from uh, the the existing research. But there's much we don't know, unfortunately. And has this been the case for a number of years, or is this uh, a lot of um, conversation has been tracking to the Dickey Amendment, which passed in '96, which has been a de facto ban on certain types of research conducted by the NIH and the CDC. Has that 20-year period contributed to this, or is this been a long-ranging issue that relates to something uh, beyond the Dickey Amendment? Well, it's, it's a combination of two factors, I think. One is that uh, the, the tools to actually estimate the impact of laws and policies have really only developed over the last 20 years or so. And, uh, and have been improving over that 20 year period. So the fact that the Dickey Amendment was uh, encumbering uh, research at, at the time when we first be, got to a position where we were able to draw uh, conclusions about the causal impact of law and policy definitely retarded the, uh, the effort to uh, uh, illuminate some of the aspects of the relationship between guns and crime. There is a pervasive idea out there that America is unique when it comes to guns. We have a history. Um, we have a constitutional uh, amendment that protects and, and our right to bear arms. Um, and we do have a higher incident of gun-related deaths. I'm wondering if we can actually leverage learnings from other countries, or if you believe this idea that America is unique and some of those findings uh, really don't apply here. Yeah, great question. You know, it's interesting that um, many, many countries once had uh, a version of the Second Amendment where they they specifically called for a, a right to keep and bear arms. And most of them have rejected that over time. And it's just a handful of countries with very high murder rates uh, that have maintained the uh, right to uh, keep and bear arms, you know, countries like Haiti and Guatemala. In the United States. Um, so uh, it, we, we are increasingly rare in the sense that we have maintained that. And in fact, uh, by virtue of the empowerment of the uh, conservative forces that pushed for a more aggressive uh, set of gun rights, uh, 
that took effect in 2008 with the Heller decision in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, where we're actually moving in the opposite direction from that of most, uh, you know, affluent countries in terms of restraining guns rather than uh, broadening access and, and um, providing greater and more powerful weaponry for civilian use. So we, we are unusual, um, but there are lessons that can be learned about what has happened in other countries um, that were perhaps in some ways more similar to us uh, a while back. Are there any that stick out in particular? I know there's been a lot of conversation about Australia's gun buyback program from a number of years ago, but are there other examples that stick out to you that we should really look towards when we're thinking about gun policy in the U.S.? Well, in general, we, for many, many different things, we, we think of, uh, you know, England, Australia, uh, and uh, Canada as being, you know, somewhat similar to the United States. Um, but for a long time, they've been moving in a very different direction from us with respect to guns. And I, I do think one thing that was interesting about Australia was that they actually had a higher rate of mass shootings in the 15 years or so before the Australian gun buyback. And so in that sense, they, they had a comparable or even worse problem when you uh, adjust the figures for the population than the United States, and yet they have managed to essentially end their mass shooting problem. I want to dive into right to carry, because that's an area that you have devoted a number of years of research to, to seeing if there's any sort of causal link between right to carry laws and increases in in violence in those communities. A number of states did pass right-to-carry laws. I think we're at uh, over 40 states now have right-to-carry laws in some shape or form. Uh, what, did you, what have you seen in terms of trends when it comes to right-to-carry laws and causal impacts on violent crime? Yes, there certainly has been a very strong movement over time towards adopting right-to-carry laws. And essentially, that has been uh, a rich area for research. And um, while some early research suggested that the adoption of right to carry laws might uh, dampen crime, uh, I think there's been a uh, general coalescing around the, the notion that right to carry laws are associated with increased rates of violent crime. And that's in fact what my latest study showed. And just to sort of delve into this further, I think there was a NRC report that had uh, and came out in what two thousand four, I believe that that really started to examine this and and was inconclusive about a number of effects um, when you take into account a number of of comments from from people on that report. But yours is now taking in into account your analysis is taking into account almost twenty years worth of data, and so when you say there is a a rise in violent crime. Um, are we talking about something that is persistent in these right to carry states? Yes. Well, um, as I mentioned, the the tools of uh, causal uh, inference and the type of research uh, that's designed to test the impact of these laws and policies has improved quite a bit, even in the 
time since 2004 when the National Research Council report came out. And so that's one of the things that I was able to take advantage of, a new tool called the Synthetic Controls Approach, uh, designed by an economist at Harvard, um, is something that wasn't available when the National Research Council report was uh, issued. And uh, I had the advantage of being able to use that new technique and also uh, have uh, as you mentioned, uh, a number of different, uh, a number of additional years of data, with many more states adopting the right to carry laws, and so what we were able to do was essentially uh, use this technique to predict what likely would have happened in the states that did adopt these laws, and then compare to what uh, would have happened, what actually did happen. And that's where you see this discrepancy that the states that adopt right to carry laws uh, seem to have higher rates of crime than we would have uh, predicted uh, using the synthetic controls uh, methodology. This is obviously a very complicated finding that takes into account a lot of societal variables. So how do you account for things like increased law enforcement investment or incarceration rates when it comes to trying to understand what is actually causing the violent crime uptick. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is what makes um, any estimates about uh, impact on crime so challenging because there are so many factors that do influence crime and and not all of them are easily controlled for. But the synthetic controls approach is, is an interesting one because what it tries to do is it looks at a certain state and said, well, uh, if we compare this state to uh, a set of other states, what, what we sometimes see is a very similar pattern in crime prior to the adoption of the right to carry law. And, um, and yet these other states did not adopt the right to carry law. And so we predict what would have continued to happen in these other states and compare it to what happened in the adopting state. And the, the notion is that um, since these other states had very similar patterns of crime prior to the particular adoption of right to carry, uh, we're going to assume that that pattern would continue going forward. And that's what gives us this essentially counterfactual estimate of what would have happened in the state of interest. And one thing that you mentioned that I thought was also quite interesting is we do know that after states adopt right to carry laws, they tend to have higher increases in the numbers of police and incarceration uh, in the aftermath of adoption. And that, again, is consistent with the fact that they're experiencing larger uh, increases in violent crime and are using uh, enhanced uh, incarceration and greater numbers of police to try to restrain the influence of uh, right to carry laws on crime. Obviously, the right to carry isn't the same state to state. There's lots of different variants of it. And there's lots of different controls that have been placed on states that allow right to carry. I'm wondering if we know anything about systems that have been put in place, like Connecticut has permit to purchase and Illinois has license to own, whether those controls related to right to carry, if we have much evidence around what the policy impacts are? You know, again, this is this is something that uh, a number of researchers are trying to explore. And there have been some uh, papers that have been uh, optimistic about the permit to purchase uh, 
form of regulation. In general, I think that's a good idea. Um, there's been less ability uh, to estimate that, that impact uh, as precisely as I was able to do, because as you mentioned, so many states uh, over the 37-year period that we looked at did adopt right-to-carry laws that I had a richer set of states to uh, choose from. When you're just looking at a single or, or a, a limited number of states, uh, you often don't have um, quite enough variation to get precise estimates, and yet the, the work that has been done uh, is suggestive that uh, permit to purchase is, is uh, an appealing way to uh, regulate uh, purchase of firearms. Is this the kind of situation where beyond the fact that we're you're talking about the data set size by having larger states, and, and it's probably important to note that a lot of your analysis was done at the county level, so increasing the data set size by having many more states involved will make a difference. Is time a real important variable here for us to to look at? Because I'm I'm wondering if we can make assessments a year or two, even five years out from a policy being enacted. Yeah, very good point. So, for example, just today I was trying to look at uh, the limited number of states that uh, have moved from the right to carry permitting system to a permitless carry system. So in, in, under a traditional right to carry law, you still have to apply for and be issued a permit to carry a handgun. Uh, when a state moves to what is called permitless carry, anyone who's not prohibited by federal law from carrying is, is allowed to carry a weapon even without having any permit. And so it takes a while for uh, the data to be collected, and it also takes a while for the impact to fully reveal itself. And so today I was just looking at three states, Alaska, Arizona, and Wyoming. And uh, for example, Arizona and Wyoming adopted their laws in 2011, and my data only went up to 2014. So you get a sense that I only had three years of data post-adoption for two of those three states and only two states uh, to uh, to evaluate uh, that adopted at, at that moment. So I have less confidence in the results that come from that analysis. And, and hopefully as uh, more data comes in in the next few years, uh, we'll, we'll have a better read on what the impact of uh, permitless carry is. The RAND Corporation came out with a, a massive review of thousands of studies uh, related to gun control and gun policy across a number of different outcomes and factors. And, and some of your work is cited in, in their section on um, right to carry and the impact across a, a number of outcomes. And they do cite your work as, as being evidence of, of some limited rise in overall uh, violent crime. But they still cite it as limited because there just aren't that many studies that have been done in this sector. Uh, are there other studies that are ongoing around right to carry that use different methodologies, different data sets that are coming to the same conclusion you are? Yes. I mean, one of the uh, the unfortunate things of the RAND study, which is a very impressive uh, piece of work, I think, is that uh, some of the most important studies on right to carry have come out just in the last six months, including the, the major study that I'm talking about uh, for my own work. Um, 
And none of those uh, most recent studies made it into the RAND study because they had to sort of cut off the date at which they uh, uh, were able to comment on particular studies. So uh, I think they, they correctly said uh, the information was relatively limited as of a year ago. But even in the last year, uh, not only do you have uh, my study coming out, but you also have uh, uh, an impressive study that came out in the American Journal of Public Health, uh, which focused on the impact of right to carry on uh, firearm homicides and overall homicides. And that study um, uh, drew a strong conclusion that uh, firearm firearm homicides, particularly handgun homicides, which would be the ones which would be most influenced by right to carry, were elevated by the adoption of these laws. And then a new study that uh, has not yet been published out of Duke University came to almost the identical conclusion that, that I had reached using a completely different methodology um, and, and different data but concluding that right to carry laws were associated with a substantial increase in, in violent crime. So I think uh, since the uh, RAND report was sort of put to bed, uh, much more uh, complete and robust evidence has uh, been amassed uh, suggesting the, the harmful consequences of right to carry laws. Is this a, a trend that there is more research going on? And uh, the quality of that research um, is is high so that we can come to con some conclusions around this topic. Yeah, I mean, clearly there is is a growing interest uh, as as the mass shooting problem in the United States uh, has gotten increasingly worse. The interest in in studying guns uh, has grown. And as I mentioned, uh, some of these new tools uh, hold the promise that we uh, we'll be able to get a better read on the impact of, of these laws and policies. So um, I think there there is a trend in that direction. I also want to talk uh, briefly about some of your other work that really looks at restricting gun access to those who have been convicted of domestic violence and and that impact on violent crime overall, which I think tracks back to the 96 Gun Control Act that did prevent those that were convicted uh, convicted at least of a misdemeanor for domestic violence from owning guns. Uh, what what did you find in terms of restricting that access and in its impact? Yeah, I think the the research that has been done in this area sort of consistently shows that that's a very good predictor. In other words, uh, the 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 identification of an individual as someone who uh, has engaged in violent domestic abuse. Uh, that that's a very good predictor of uh, you know subsequent uh, uh, violent activity, and so to take away guns from those individuals uh, seems to play an important role in reducing uh, uh, um, you know further domestic ab abuse and overall uh, violent crime. And, and to be clear, is this actually taking away weapons from from these uh, these convicted? Uh, those that have been convicted, or is it preventing them from purchasing new weapons? Well, essentially, the federal prohibition has its most significant bite at the front end when someone goes to purchase a gun, because after that uh, federal law was was modified, uh, you were not able to buy a gun, um, at least through a, a licensed gun dealer. Um, but it also 
uh, has as an element of that uh, that you become a prohibited purchaser uh, or possessor of any gun. And so you're supposed to divest yourself of guns. And if you don't do so, you're you're guilty of a, a serious federal uh, felony. Supposed to seems like a strange way of putting it, but um, when it comes to this classification, but I, I can understand why. Um, I want to track back to something you you kind of alluded to with the with the Heller case that went before the Supreme Court. In a lot of these cases that we're talking about, right to carry these restricting access, we're seeing action on the state level, but it's inconsistent across states. I'm wondering if we are heading towards another Supreme Court case that's really going to make a a significant ruling on on the constitutionality of not just our right to to have arms, but to actually carry them. Yeah, there's no question that um, the cases are making their way through the court. And at some point, the U.S. Supreme Court will provide the uh, the answer as to uh, what the contours of permissible uh, or constitutionally mandated uh, uh, rights to carry weapons outside the home will be. Um, right now, uh, the state of California is being sued because it has restricted right to carry, and some states, uh, or excuse me, some uh, federal courts have ruled that it's permissible under the Second Amendment to restrict right to carry, and, and other federal courts have said that it's impermissible. So the Supreme Court at some point will step in and render a verdict on which of those uh, judgments is is the one that uh, will prevail. And I know you say at some point, but do we have any indication of when that is? Is this something that they, they're going to have to deal with in the, in the short term, or is this something that's going to be punted down the road? Well, of course, the Supreme Court has enormous discretion as to what cases they will take. So you, you do see some of the justices uh, expressing exasperation that they, uh, they, the U.S. Supreme Court has not uh, taken up one of these cases to decide this or some other important issues in the gun regulation arena. But um, uh, you also don't know exactly what reasons are are leading them to hold off on this. It, it's conceivable that at this point, you know, the, the NRA may be trying to encourage the justices to hold off until uh, President Trump may be able to uh, get another appointment, perhaps replacing uh, uh, Justice Kennedy or, or uh, a more liberal judge, and therefore increase the likelihood that a, a Second Amendment-friendly decision to the NRA would be adopted on these important constitutional questions. I want to track back to something we kind of alluded to at the beginning, that there is a lot of gaps in this research. And, and quite frankly, there there's a long way to go. If you, I think if you read the, the RAND Corporation uh, uh, assessment, there are a number of gaps uh, identified. Uh, I'm curious, as an academic researcher that's been studying this for a long time, do you have thoughts on who needs to be conducting this research and who needs to fund it? And what we need to research the most right now? Yeah, great, great question. And and I should say that um, I 
discussed many aspects of the RAND report with its authors uh, over uh, a period prior to publication. I haven't seen the final version, which only came out about a week ago, um, but there, there were conclusions that they were reaching that I disagreed with. Obviously, there was much I did agree with. Uh, so, for example, one area, uh, they were, they were um, somewhat more skeptical uh, about how strong a conclusion we could make at this point about how gun prevalence uh, influences gun suicides and overall rates of suicide. I think that evidence is actually quite strong, um, but since such, such a high proportion of overall gun deaths are suicides, that's clearly a, a very important area for research. And, and I hope that, uh, uh, you know, the forthcoming uh, research in this area will clarify whether my concern is, is, is actually uh, correct or, um, you know, whether a different conclusion should be reached. Um, and, and so in general, almost everything in the gun area is, is still uh, a, a rich area for continued research, either just to uh, buttress the findings that have come out that we have heretofore believed in, or um, you know, come up with new studies that can advance our, uh, uh, our predictions over what we were able to achieve in the past. And just to be clear on that, do you feel like it's important for the federal government to be the one driving the research forward as a as a funder, or can this come from outside groups and still maintain the same credibility? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I do think uh, academic research can can certainly be conducted at a very high level of of credibility. Um, but as your your reference to the uh, both the National Research Council report of 2004, as well as the recent uh, RAND study, there, there still are many differences among empirical researchers about methodology and how conclusive certain approaches are. Um, so, so one of the areas in which uh, continued improvements will hopefully be made is simply in the tools that statistics and econometrics uh, develop to uh, uh, give us better insight into what the impact of these laws are. Hopefully, uh, one area that the federal government can play uh, an important role in is uh, improving the quality of the data that is available. And this is an area of dismay for me because the NRA has uh, made it a consistent uh, objective to try to suppress uh, data on gun-related uh, crime and so forth, um, which, which makes it much harder for researchers. So in the area of right to carry, for example, um, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, a pretty horrific uh, shootout at a bar in Waco, Texas, and 171 bikers were arrested. And I contacted the local prosecutors and police to try to figure out how many of those 171 had right to carry permits. Um, but under an NRA approved and sponsored uh, gag law, um, Texas law would not allow any information about uh, which of these uh, arrested criminals had uh, had right to carry permits. And so that just makes the research uh, harder to do. 
And you always suspect, of course, that um, the person who's trying to cover up the information um, at least suspects that the information would uh, uh, be counter to their interests. And as a final thought, I'm curious about your opinion. You've been studying um, gun violence for decades. And uh, for many, I think they feel like we've we've entered a, a stagnant period where we haven't seen much in the way of laws or regulation. And I think there's dissatisfaction among that among some for that. There's, you know, some that really appreciate the status quo st- being maintained. Uh, but we see they have entered a, a period of time over the last few weeks where there is a sense that something is going to happen when it comes to gun policy. Do you share? As, as share the optimism that that something is in the works uh, that that's going to help reduce overall violent crime when it comes to gun, gun policy based on what you're seeing now or is or are we in for a, a much longer fight than than what has been intimated recently in the media yeah i I do think we're in for a very long fight. Uh, so, for example, one thing that I think would clearly improve uh, the mass shooting problem, at least in terms of reducing the uh, number and severity of the injuries, is a ban on high capacity magazines. And yet, while California adopted such a ban, uh, a federal judge in California has enjoined, the implementation of that ban, which was supposed to go into effect uh, in July of last year, under Second Amendment grounds, and so you see that we, there, and we've already alluded to the fact that uh, uh, California has been sued for its right to carry restrictions. So you can see that there are many uh, strands of the legal battle that are in play, and some of them may shut off promising areas for addressing. Uh, gun violence or mass shootings in particular. And and so we don't know how that will play out in the Supreme Court. At the same time, the uh, current Congress is uh, very heavily uh, influenced by uh, the NRA. And the NRA has taken a a very strong anti-regulatory position uh, across the board. So it's, it's very hard to see how uh, the Congress will move in a benign direction uh, at this point. But at, at some point, something may happen, again, with the caveat that even if uh, there is success in something like a assault weapon ban or a restriction on high-capacity magazines reinstated at the federal level, um, you could conceivably see that taken away by a U.S. Supreme Court decision. So it seems like anything that that may be coming down the the pipe in the in the near future will probably be fought and railed against in the courts for for many years to come. So it sounds like we're in for a, a long haul when it comes to changing any gun policy here in the United States. Um, yeah. Well, I would say uh, universal background checks is something that I think every court would accept as not a restriction on the Second Amendment. And that's something that that could play an important role. So so we could we could do that fairly quickly without fear of reversal in the courts. But uh, as I mentioned so far, the current Congress doesn't seem willing. And we know the NRA doesn't want to give up the enormous loopholes that allows many more guns to be sold. 
Well, thank you for your decades of research on this topic, and I wish you success as you continue forward. John Donahue, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. After the interview, I'm left with more questions than answers. And I think that's the story of gun violence research right now. It may be in a time of boon where we're going to get many more studies over the coming years. But where we are right now is a place where we're going to have to make decisions on gun policy without science being there to provide solid evidence. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. Indre will be back next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.